Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, the podcast, this time talking to Gisela Stewart and we're talking in Gisela's London home on the eve of Brexit. Gisela was a key figure in the campaign to leave the EU and a very unusual one too. For one thing, she was a Labour MP for 20 years. She is also a Brit who was born in Germany. So she confounded the Brexiteer stereotype. Gisela may be many things, but she's certainly not gammon, the dismissive phrase often used to describe middle-aged white men who are frequently associated with the Brexit phenomenon. Gisela's Brexit story is informed by a deep inside knowledge of the workings of Brussels, which we'll hear about shortly. She was also chair of the Vote Leave campaign alongside Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. Uh, Gisela, hello. Hello, Edwin. Gisela, I mentioned the fact that you were born in West Germany as it was then and came and settled in the UK and became an MP for Birmingham Edgebaston. And I'm assuming for much of that period, the idea of Brexit, the idea of leaving the European Union would have been, if you'll pardon the phrase, foreign to you. Oh, completely. I would even go further. Uh, For someone with my background, post-war West German, um, the... European Economic Community, as it was known then, was a, an existential answer to the horrors of World War II. Uh, the mainland of Europe had to find a way where particularly France and Germany worked together. Also for a young German, that was a way of how Germany could redeem itself on the world stage, economic success and political respectability. The other thing which was very strange for me is that You see, I grew up in a federal republic, so a federal state never had any fears for me. Indeed, I grew up to think that federal was a way by which you avoided concentration of power rather than being the symbol of concentration of power. And if you almost fast forward to the early 2000s, when I was British parliamentary representative in Brussels for 15 months, charged with drafting a European constitution... It seemed to me a perfectly reasonable project that if the European Union was taking on more political powers, it therefore had to have more political checks and balances in terms of of an electorate. Federal, I knew it was an absolutely incendiary word for the British, but if if, if you could show it as something that was not centralising power. And then I discovered to my extraordinary surprise that the European Union never progressed from its founding principle, that its structure was meant to protect governments from the people. A group of wise, in those days, men, but increasingly wise men and women, who whilst they needed to respond to the calls from the street, nevertheless this was a, a question of containing the will of the people. If the, will, if the people wanted something they didn't agree with, then it was a question of persuading them of the errors of their way, rather than changing the direction of travel. That's actually not a terribly new idea, because uh, having been involved in constitution writing, I then went back to the American constitution, and you know the Jefferson-Madison debate was, again, protecting the wise decision-makers from the the daily will of the people. And I have reached a position where 
it may sound curious, but I looked back and I thought, okay, when in the early 90s, uh, under the then Prime Minister John Major, the, the British government opted out from ever being a member of the single currency and the free travel area. And given Britain's geography and its history in its relationship to Europe, I finally reached the conclusion that faced with a European Union that seems unwilling to change and probably has become unable to change, and a history of the United Kingdom and the introduction of the euro, it almost for me became a question of when rather than if that we would leave. And I still would argue that in 50 years' time we will regard it as more remarkable that Britain joined the common market than that he decided to leave it. Let me just understand your position then prior to the 2000s. You were comfortable with the notion that Britain was a, a free trade area. You understood the role of the European Union as it had then become, as it then become in preventing war between France and Germany, traditional historical enemies, but the idea was to bind them more closely together in terms of trade, so that instead of being en enemies, they were natural colleagues and partners, and that Britain, which of course had been part of these historical enmities as well, was brought into that world. Were you comfortable with, with all of that, with free trade, with free travel within the 27 member states? Of course, in the early 2000s, there weren't 27. We had 11 members joining in 2004 after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the collapse of the, the Soviet Union. So what I was very comfortable with was the the notion of the original six, and you could almost go to the to nine, twelve, and then there became 15. The post-World War II settlement was twofold. The key issue was to stop Germany ever starting another war, which is twice in, in, in the last century. But there also was an imperative uh, driven by the United States that Europe would not become communist. So the deal for stability on mainland Europe was twofold. The common market was to ensure economic stability and NATO provided for defence so that you always went hand in hand. The free movement of people, which started in, uh, in, in a very sort of modified way until the 2000s when it became an, 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 an absolute right, was also by the founding fathers of the community that they thought, if you m mix the people, then the likelihood of going to war will be reduced. But the key point for me were these various uneasy compromises which could accommodate the, the fundamental needs of the French and the Germans and the slightly semi-detached position of the Brits was once you introduced a single currency. Once you have a currency, you do need a joint finance ministry. You do need to know what the equivalent of the Bank of England is that underwrites the currency in case of liquidity failing. And free movement of labour uncontrolled free movement of labour becomes essential to the functioning of a single currency. So you could almost say that the, the introduction of the euro itself became when the ability to live with uneasy compromises, something which the Brits are so good at, became practically in the long term impossible. Why do you say that free movement is intrinsic to the idea of 
a single currency? Because if you... Well, let's go back to probably in, in living history, the, the, the last big example of when a single currency was created, uh, where political will and economic reality came together to do that. And that was the creation of the US dollar. You, you have the American War of Independence. But at that stage in the 19th century, you, you didn't have a Bank of America. You had the dollar, but it was not an effective currency. It did not become an effective single currency, which became economically sustainable, not just because people said, that's the price of the union. Politically, we must make it work. It was in the 20th century with the introduction of the railways, and the, the creation of a central bank because a single currency requires you to be able to deal with asymmetric shocks in your economy. So if you've got unemployment in one area, you must, A, must be able to intervene financially, you've got central funds, and B, you must allow for people to move to follow where the jobs are. And if you don't have that ability, you will find it very difficult to have an effective currency. And you said that there was something in the writing of the constitution. You were involved in the writing of the draft constitution for the European Union. And this sense that the powers that be in Brussels were trying to write the constitution to protect the politicians rather than to respond to the will of the people. Was that something that was present before the constitution that you helped to draft? Or was that something that arrived with the constitution that you were helping to draft and that you were alarmed by? I think it's one of those things where most of us, we live in democratic structures, uh, but we never really think about them. You know, we see the end results. So when an election is held, we, we end up thinking that democracy is all about a piece of paper uh, and the names on the ballot and you make your cross and then we count them. We forget that this is the end result of deep structures like where do political parties come from? Uh, you know, how do we organise when a result comes and one group has won, but the government still operates with a loyal opposition? You know, and the loyal opposition has the right to oppose, but accepts the government's right to govern. So there are a whole lot of conventions which we, in some cases, have forgotten about or just never think about. And what to me the key thing was in, in, in the constitution writing process, I thought if this is a voluntary union of nation states, which was always the assumption, then you had to have a clause which would allow you to leave. I thought you'd have to, given that the European Union kept expanding, but kept saying we will deepen and expand and I kept thinking, how can you create a demos, i.e. that feeling where you close your eyes and you say we, and you know who we is, from Lithuania to Greece. Uh, there, there comes a point when you have to say, what is the shape of the demos? But much more importantly, if you have mechanisms where powers can go to the centre, then there must be mechanisms where the centre can return powers. And it wasn't a question of which these powers were but the principled mechanism. And it was the refusal to create even a principled mechanism that powers could ever do anything other than go to Brussels, which I thought, no, that can't work. 
it's quite a, a cerebral argument, isn't it, that you're presenting here? Essentially, are you saying that it was the, for want of a better phrase, the bureaucrats of, of Brussels, that the civil servants, the people who were there, year in, year out, regardless of the outcome of any particular election, who were hogging power to themselves and who were unwilling to be responsive to the will of the people if they thought the people had got it wrong. And and they actually, they're not bad people. You know, they, they genuinely thought that they are defending uh, something bigger and, and worthier uh, than the here today and gone tomorrow will of the people. But l- let me give you a very, very simple example. After the financial crisis and Greece, a member of the Eurozone, was financially in deep, deep trouble. And the question was, what would happen to Greece? The people of Greece could go to the ballot box and elect a government. And they did. And they elected a very left-wing government. But they had no say over the policies that government could implement. So the Greek left-wing government that you're describing was avowedly anti-austerity in effect, yet the economic policy that the Greek people were first to endure was one of austerity imposed by the European Central Bank. Exactly. So my notion of democracy is that not only you vote for the people who govern you, but also the policies. And unless the two come together at the same time, then that is no longer my idea of democracy. So in being part of the team that drew up the draft constitution, you could see that drift towards what was described as ever closer union as being something that you personally felt uncomfortable with and something that you felt the British people would not feel an affinity with. Well, it was even worse than that. It was that I was, when I questioned the, the, the notion that this may not be the right way forward, and at the time insisted that there was a, a clause which would allow it to leave. It wasn't just that people disagreed with me. I, I, I was seen like a heretic who probably 500 years ago would have burnt at the stakes. You know, there was this sort of horror. How can you even suggest that? And it is that mindset which I think is the real problem. Was there a particular moment that you can point to when you had to look yourself in the mirror and say you know what, I've gone along with this, I've accepted Britain's membership of the European Union, but now I'm going to have to become one of those band of people who are known as Eurosceptics. Was there a particular time and a place? Not in one place. There were kind of three moments. One was in 2002 when we finally presented our draft and uh, there was this big celebration in, in, in Brussels and it's the only time in my life I knowingly turned my back on a glass of champagne <laughs> uh, to the music of Beethoven's Ninth because I thought well, it's no good making a fuss over this but I disagree with this. Uh, it was the final sort of 72 hours of the negotiations where what I thought all the checks and balances which would have allowed for change to happen procedurally even if the, the change had been defined but you could do it. And I thought, no, I, I can't deal with this. And so I took my train back to London. And then was just miserable for a number of months. And finally then wrote this all down. And that's where a Fabian pamphlet called The Making of Europe's Constitution, published six months after that event. That was politically the point of dissent. And 
politically the point of dissent in terms of labor policy. Tony Blair was prime minister. This was so against the grain. But I still would not have spent my, my political career to campaign first to leave the European Union. I campaigned in 2005 for the Lisbon Treaty, which was the rehashed constitution, that there should be a referendum. And I, I still would say that is the appropriate and most... That's, that's, that's the way to use referendums. And that called for a referendum to ratify the constitution, which you had been part of yeah. the team drawing up. Yeah, it was a kind of rewritten, because you see the constitution was rejected, not by the Brits, it was rejected by the French and the Dutch, which did come as a bit of a shock to the system. So they did recheck things a bit, but the essence remained the same. And I thought if we had that, a referendum here, it would tell people, this is what we have now, this is the future direction of travel, which was deeper integration, all kinds of things, say yay or nay. But again, after that, you know, the, the, the party managers knew that when there was a vote in Europe, Gisela would get slightly funny and, uh, you know, we had very good relationships. But of course, when Cameron then called the referendum in 2016, it meant that people like me, who could not endorse a deeply flawed system, were suddenly forced to take a position which we wouldn't have done without the referendum itself. Before that referendum, and you talked about a couple of years earlier, the accession of a number of new states to the European Union, and there was a particular moral panic in the UK around Eastern European migrants in particular. Britain had had a more liberal accession regime to Eastern European migrants than some other EU countries had done. Do you think that that fear of migration was one of the reasons why British people voted to leave the EU? And, was, and were they justified to do so if they did? It's actually it's a very interesting question, and, and it kind of also explains why a, a number of negotiators in Europe were and continue to be completely puzzled by the Brits. So 2004, those new member states join. Virtually all the other European countries, mainland European countries, who had land borders with Poland in, in particular, put in transition periods as to when the complete free movement of labour would happen. And the Brits were the only ones who at that time took a moral high ground and said, no, 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 we open our borders immediately. So when, you know, as they saw it, 12 years later, a prime minister knocks on the door and says, unless you change these rules, we're leaving. And one of the main reasons why we want to leave is because of this free movement of labour. They were going... But but you were the guys who wanted it to begin with. So, you know, we, we can't pretend that there, there weren't some inconsistencies in our policies. But the thing which, which strikes me, that particularly the left never made the case. I don't think anybody would argue that you should have completely free borders. If, if, you, if you regard the, the right of the existence of the nation state as a defence of the realm for which you need to raise taxes... So within a geographical area by which you raise taxes, you've got to remember it always comes back to money that those people who live there and who have the right to live and work there, someone somewhere, I think, need to have the right to decide and collectively make the decision. And if you have no mechanisms, then it also becomes incredibly difficult to plan for your public services. So 
let's just look at school places, let's look at hospitals, let's look at housing. If, if you cannot, if you have no say over flows of people, you cannot manage things. And what has always struck me as very odd is that the better of people have always been able to deal with that. What, you know, David Goodhart calls the, the somewheres and anywheres. You know, if you're an anywhere, well, of course, if, 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 if you don't like the services in one place, you just pack your bags and go somewhere else. But not everybody has got that choice. So it wasn't just... It, it's the fact that the left never made that argument really struck me as very odd. There's some fairness associated with that. Well, the left never made the argument, presumably, because to oppose free migration would be considered racist. And I guess that's the, the argument on the left, isn't it, is that free movement of people is a good thing in and of itself. But we must be really careful not to fall into traps. I mean, just as a little sideline, I find it really curious that lots of people on Twitter, when they hurl abuse at me, which somehow they seem to have not grown tired of, even after three and a half years, I keep being invited of going back to where I came from. And that is seemed to be totally all right, because, you know, it's one European telling another European to come back to where they came from. Well, either that kind of thing is, is, is the wrong thing to say, then it's the wrong thing to say, full stop. But it's not just that there's only a particular group of people you shouldn't say this to. And if you analyse the leave vote amongst ethnicity, it is very interesting that the highest leave vote was amongst the Indian subcontinent and the lowest leave vote was in the Afro-Caribbean community. So it's not as simple as that. I think most people realise or accept that if you, if you make a place your home, you too have responsibilities to the place you live in. And I think the key driver of the leaf vote, to call it as some did, this was a racist, old and not well educated. Let me say, I think it was a vote of people who wanted community, a sense of belonging and identity. And I find it offensive that we sneer at people who want to know their community, who actually feel responsibility to us, and above all, want to have a sense of identity. In the past, there would have been voices on the left who would have articulated that argument, who would have said, we're not opposed to people on the basis of the colour of their skin, we're not opposed to people seeking to make a new life in the UK, but if they arrive in such numbers in such a short time span, that's clearly going to have an impact on wage levels, driving down the income of working class people. It's gonna have an impact on schools and on the NHS. So there is a way of articulating that argument that most people anyway would not regard as racist. Where on the left was that argument being made? Very, very few. I mean, probably the, the Morris Glassmans of this world uh, who were then labelled as Blue Labour. Well, I think yeah. he identifies with that tag, yeah. doesn't he, Blue Labour? There, there were very few, but there's, there's another issue to, uh, to look at, and that is what happens to the countries who are losing all the youngest and the brightest? I think over the centuries there have been people like me who grow up in lovely rural idyllic areas and then they get to their teens and they go... 
they get itchy feet and they go and say, there must be a big wild world out there and they pack their bags and they go. But that has always been a relatively small number. When we've got larger numbers of people who leave the places, leave their communities because of economic necessity, because they can't get jobs or feel they're, they're better jobs, you, you, you can make the charge. And some of the East European countries do make, are beginning to make that charge of saying, you are taking our youngest and brightest away from us. And that is a difficulty for them. Would you accept that there was a moment when the Leave campaign tipped over into racism? And I'm referring specifically to the poster which Nigel Farage stood in front of. Breaking Point was the headline. And behind it there were hundreds of people looking vaguely Eastern European or Roma, who one presumes were meant to represent asylum seekers and refugees in what was a pretty poor campaign in terms of honesty from both sides and what was a kind of pretty rancid campaign in terms of the anger and the hostility again on both sides I think many people would regard that as a low point were you disturbed by that poster oh yeah which is and it this is this is not kind of nitpicking. It's actually very, very important. When the referendum was called, uh, the Electoral Commission appointed one organisation to be the official leave campaign. That was Vote Leave. That was your organisation? That was my organisation. That was Boris Johnson. That was Michael Gove. It was not Nigel Farage. And it was not UKIP. And that was really, really important to me even to the extent that if Vote Leave had not got the nomination uh, and the, the Leave campaign for the referendum would have been led by Nigel Farage and UKIP, uh, I would have not campaigned in the referendum. I would have fallen silent. How strange did it feel for you, uh, Labour MP, as you ultimately were for 20 years, to be sharing a platform with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove? During the campaign, that did not feel strange because, you see, that was a, a complete cross-party. So Harriet Harman was in Birmingham with David Cameron and Vince Cable. So the, if, you, if you're running two, two campaigns which are cross-party, then it, it, it was happening on both sides. I'd known Michael Gove for a long time before because I edited a political magazine where he was one of my associate editors. I had not known Boris Johnson before. So that wasn't the strange thing. The strange thing was that during the general election was that moment where we get to the end of November this year and I sort of almost edged myself step by step to the absolute conviction that we can only break the stalemate of the last three and a half years if we have a majority government. The worst thing that could happen is another general election, another hung parliament, another period of indecision. And that was the moment when we kind of did our friends reunited and Boris, Michael and I got together again and I said, this is, this is not a normal general election. This is a... The, the best way to, to describe it is saying, you voted to leave in 2016 for three and a half years, people said, oh, but the people didn't really mean it. 
this general election is now to say, if you really meant it, then, then you produce a, a, a majority government. And of course, I knew at that stage, I really was leaving Labour. That was much more difficult in terms of a journey, not in terms of thinking it was the only thing I could do. In terms of the referendum, I saw David Cameron, I think it was the day before the actual referendum itself. It may have been two days before, at a bus depot in Birmingham. Clearly he was rattled. This was a a late drummed up interview and I was invited to nip down and see him. It wasn't on anybody's agenda just a few days before. So clearly there was a sense in Downing Street that something was going awry. Although even then I have to say that the responses I got from David Cameron were very similar to the ones he'd given on previous interviews on national television. He seemed as though he was reading from a script, quite honestly. Do you think he was genuinely surprised by what happened or do you think he had an inkling of what was to come? I think what they could tell is that things certainly weren't going the way they had planned them to be. It's very easy to forget what uh, unequal battle this was. You know, before the referendum campaign starts, the government spends a leaf spends more money on one leaflet that goes to every household telling people to vote Remain than the entire campaigns were collectively allowed to spend. And then you had George Osborne telling everybody, if you vote leave, you'll be, was it £4,800 worse off? President Obama came and said, you mustn't go and leave. The, you know, Christine Lagarde said, you, I mean, literally everybody said, you mustn't. And because David Cameron was so convinced that that would be the outcome, he didn't even allow civil servants to make any preparations for the possibility of leave winning. Now, in June 2016, not many people had heard of a man called Dom Cummings. They have now, but in, in, in those days, it was the small group around us. And I remember going up to Manchester where all the results were, were coming in and the official result would be declared. And my last phone call with, with Dom was, he said, remember, if the turnout is below 60%, we've won. If it's between 60 and 68, they have won. And if it's over 68, we have won again. <laughs> and when, the, when the, the close of poll and the first figure came through, which said turnout was 72%, I thought, well, if Dom's right, we've won. And of course he was. How significant a figure was Dominic Cummings and why? He was exceptionally significant. And... But it wasn't just him, it was him and a small group of people. And what they had was a clarity of mind. Whatever was going around the world, they they continued to see things in a very focused way of what needed to be done. An ability to make a significant number of decisions under pressure and very quickly. But the other thing which I liked about Dom is that he's always prepared to try new things, but he tests his own ideas against this. So he isn't, he isn't an ideologue, he isn't someone who just says, I know the answers, but he applies a process of 
how you can arrive at the best answers. And sometimes that answer is right and sometimes it's not right. And when it's not right and you're in a very short campaign, you just ditch it and move on. I asked you earlier about the left and the failure to articulate an anti-EU view. Of course, many people would say that a natural leader of the Labour Eurosceptic movement might well have been Jeremy Corbyn, someone who would argue against the flows of capital across national borders, someone who would argue that flows of people in large numbers over a short period of time are likely to deflate wages. Do you think that at heart Jeremy Corbyn is a Eurosceptic or that he had some kind of conversion and that he was actually at heart a Remainer? Well, let's put it that way. I did not trouble the whips with my unorthodox voting record on the subject of Europe until about 2003. But I think if you were to go back to Jeremy Corbyn's voting record ever since he entered Parliament in the 80s, he'd been pretty consistent on that. And he was, a, to, to my mind... Well, he was pretty consistently opposed to pretty much any policy that the Labour leader yeah. of the time put forward in any of it. But but he was a kind of Benite, traditional, let's face it, the second half of the last century view of the world, which said... Uh, Capital is evil, so are big companies and anything that represents it. So his, his Euroscepticism was very much a, a creature of the past. But I have seen absolutely no evidence that he's changed his mind on that. And, and arguably, you could say that uh, the, the referendum's uh, greatest ally, or one of the greatest allies, uh, was, was Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think that if... Labour had had a leader who was able to articulate a strong Remain position, somebody perhaps like Keir Starmer, that Remain might have swung the poll the other way? I think by the time you got to the referendum, that was too late. You see, both main political parties have been divided over Europe. It's it just the sort of flip. So in, in, in the, the conversion of being this utterly pro-European party happened to Labour in the late 80s when Margaret Thatcher would deny workers' rights and all those things, and a fairly socialist Jacques Delors-led commission gave us all those things. So that combined with that we knew on our side that all we had to say to the Tories was Europe, and they'd be dividing, you know, like like a group of sheep. And we know that the, the voters hate divided parties. So we became unquestioningly pro-European, Tony Blair then comes in, and to me to this day, was the only British Prime Minister who was pro-European for strategic global reasons. Not because it was just a handy stick with which to beat the Tories and divide them. And it was not historic sentimentality, which was the reason why Ted Heath wanted to join. It was the world is going and it requires bigger power blocks. And he, in his first term, set up ministerial structures in the Foreign Office that the people with portfolio would meet. Uh, we as MPs were sent off to have meetings with our sister parties across Europe. Ministers were encouraged to learn foreign languages. And there was a real engagement which came to an end with Iraq. The invasion of Iraq by the, by the, by the, by the Brits and, and, and the Americans, without the support of the French and the Germans, created two big divisions. One was that that division within Europe, I mean, up to that point, 
the German Chancellor and the British Prime Minister were writing joint policy papers. So that dividing line came in. And of course, Tony Blair as a Prime Minister took his eye off that project in many ways. And that then meant that by the time we, we arrived at 2016, the Labour Party had never internally articulated to itself why it was still a pro-European party. And, you know, I could have written part of that script, so saying, you know, we, we, are, we are traditional cooperators, we're internationalists, we're not divided by, by, by sovereignty, all those kind of things. But, but the groundwork hadn't been done. And you, you end up now with this extraordinary position where since the election in December last year, the Tory party for the first time in 40 years is utterly united on the subject of Europe and it is Labour which is divided. You reference the big power blocks that there are in the world. The European Union remains one, doesn't have an army, but it is a big, powerful block. I would even argue that we live in an age of empires. Maybe all ages are ages of empires. The United States is an empire. Russia is an empire. China is an empire in the making as well. So it seems to me that in determining its future, its place in the world, Britain has to decide which empire it wants to be part of. It can't be part of its own empire anymore. Those days have gone, the days of being a British empire. In choosing to be part of the United States empire, certainly in terms of trade rather than the European empire, well, what have we got to leverage? What have we got to argue with in terms of demanding a, a fair trade deal. But we are moving through a period of a very Hobbesian view that individuals and states, or as Hobbes would have said, states like individuals, are driven by self-interests. And probably the most devastating example at the moment of that is the way Trump conducts its policy. So that then leaves, if you are UK PLC, and you you look at how do you deal with that, you you either have one block the European Union that has not shown itself to be particularly adaptable to things. It kind of sets its own rules. And the, their question of who underwrites their currency is so fundamental. And we would never be part of that, that that split might have happened anyway. And then you end up, the, the really massive challenges that I think trade rules are now much more determined by global rules. So if you are BMW or Jaguar Land Rover, you, you, you care about global supply chains. It's not just the European supply chains that are difficult. But these and are difficult, very tricky waters very tricky, to but, navigate, aren't but, they? But you have to navigate it at some stage. And, you know, if uh, let's just take one analogy. WTO, the World Trade Organization, pretty difficult organization that is probably not functioning very well, but it's the only organization we have. If Trump gets re-elected at the end of this year, then WTO may never get reformed. But we must, we must find a new, a new way of, of dealing with this. And this is actually one of the things the Brits historically have been absolutely brilliant at. So... We will find a new role, but it's not going to be easy, but it's not going to be easy for the others either. No, but it, at the moment, we do have this frictionless trade with an extremely wealthy part of the world, which is the European Union. We are potentially going to sacrifice that frictionless trade for 
an unknown deal, an unknown deal with perhaps a country like the United States, which may expect or demand some kind of military assurances to go along with that. It, it, it might demand that and drive a very hard bargain because its president believes in putting America first. Mm. But what I find really curious about the, the current dec- decade is when I grew up, uh, you know, President Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon at the end of the decade. Uh, there, was a, there was a future looking, whereas we're going at the moment through a decade where all of us are really just focusing on saying, whatever happened in the past, we really have to hold on to it because there can't be anything better out there. And it may just be that that ability to change and adapt, which really is the great skill you have to have if you want to, to survive, because the world around you is changing. Mm. Uh, I, I understand, that's what we need to do. I understand that. But I suppose part of the problem, I would suggest, on the Brexit side has been to articulate that vision. There are people mm. on the right who articulate a vision of a, an economy with uh, many fewer regulations than we have at the moment. That might lead to fewer workers' rights, that may, might lead to abolition of minimum wage and certain standards and so on. Now, whether or not you agree with that, you know, that's a coherent mm. vision of a post-Brexit Britain. I don't hear many other alternative visions of a post-Brexit Britain than that one. One of the things which I always find quite extraordinary, and it's been my, my trouble with the trade union movement is I care as much about those who don't have a job as those who have. I do think workers' rights are really important, but you also have to get to to a position where people do have jobs. And if you look at the the, the way the world is is developing, you've got much greater automation. The, 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 The scope for people to earn, to not just be the working poor, but actually make ends meet on the kind of salaries they're getting. These are big societal questions which we, Brexit or no Brexit, will be coming our way. And we mustn't go on seeing this through the spectrum of the Brexit is stopping us or forcing us to make those decisions. We'd have to make them anyway. And what we've been able to do, and this is where I think free, freedom of movement has been a problem for us, we have for too long been able to ignore some of those structural challenges by overcoming our skills gaps, all those kind of things, by bringing in the young people of other countries to cover the things which we should have done and didn't do. Just to end with a final thought, you said earlier that in 50 years' time, people will look back and not be astonished the UK left the European Union, but that we were ever in it. Hard to say, I know. Just imagine Britain in 50 years' time then. What will we be like? What will the rest of the EU be like? I think the rest of the EU, there are some things which have a literally more than a thousand-year historic tradition. I grew up calling him Karl de Grosse, the French call him Charlemagne. That kind of centre bit, that Franco-German relationship by geography and by working together. They they have to find the means, and I think they will find the means, that they will not go to war with each other, which was always the, 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 the great danger. How 
that Europe will overcome the north-south divide between the Scandinavians and, say, the, the Mediterranean countries, I think will be slightly more difficult. But what I think that the great thing which to me has has shown that resilience of the British system, it has a amazing disrespect for authority. You know, you may think that this is a very traditional country, and it is, but it's kind of traditional only in as much as it wants to. It doesn't limit limit people. It has an amazing ability to absorb ideas from the outside and change itself by being open to the ideas. And it continues to have an amazing ability to attract the young from all the world over. So that together with a very temperate climate, believe it or not, I think I've got great hopes for that to continue. And it would be quite a historic trajectory. I also would make one prediction, and that is that the union of the United Kingdom will hold. Geisler Stewart, thank you.